I want to talk today about hope for a city. And uh, for those of you who are new here, you may be here for the first time, just to let you know that uh, we've been making a bit of a deal about this word hope over the last season. And uh, some of you will recognize that we have changed the name of the sign outside the building. I hope you have actually noticed that. And it has changed from Winchester Family Church to Hope Church Winchester. And uh, last weekend, it was a great time for us. It was that sort of bunting and high five sort of moment for us where we relaunched the church, renamed the church. And now I guess we've got to wrestle with what this really means to be a people called hope. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for this church? What does it mean for the city? And what does it mean for those who have no hope, who would describe their lives as hopeless for a whole load of reasons? What are we for them? What is this church for this devastated city? A city, as we've already heard today, looks great on the outside, but what many of us will know is that those things are a very thin veneer that hide the same old issues and the same old problems. People are without hope. And uh, so as a church, I believe that we've got to be a little bit like Ronsil quick-drying Woodstain. Some of you have seen the advert. We've got to do, and we've got to make sure that this church is pretty much what it says on the tin. We can't just be called hope. We've got to be hope. So as we kick off, let's Wind the clock back three and a half thousand years. And let's see what God said to his people back in the day. What they were meant to live like, what they were meant to remember and never forget, which would help them not just to live in hope, but be a people of hope. This is from Deuteronomy 11. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Teach them to your children. Talk about them when you sit down at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So, the days and the days of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors, as many as the days that the heavens are Above the, above the earth. The very essence of what God intended the church to be. A people who never forgot who we truly were. Who never failed to understand that we have an eternal home. That we are en route to a greater destination. That's why we have hope, because this isn't our home. We are travelers in this life en route to a greater destination. And to be a people who live from the heart. I believe that a people called hope have got to be able to stand in the present, understand the past, and somehow fuse those two things together to see a future vision. Because the Bible says that without vision, the people perish. And there are a lot of people perishing without any vision, without any hope. So this is how the dictionary defies hope. Okay, This, if you like, is hope in the world's eyes, in the secular world, the secular mind. Hope is an expectation that something good may happen or a broad feeling of optimism when looking into the future. Not overly inspiring, let's be honest. An expectation that 
something good may happen, or a broad feeling of optimism when looking into the future. It's not surprising that if that is the definition of hope, that millions of people are going to pursue the greatest possible pleasure for the cheapest possible price that lasts for the longest possible time. Because if that is all hope is, we're in trouble, all of us. But the good news today is that there is a great deal more on offer than what the dictionary says about hope. Now, I'm a glutton for punishment, so I followed the party political conferences. Anyone else do that? I listened to the speeches, and, uh, you know, our intrepid leaders, Cameron and Clegg, uh, looking like they're more interested in tearing the team apart than leading a nation. And uh, good old Ed Miliband is going to fix the NHS on pixie dust, having forgot to mention that there is a deficit. And uh, I like what Sandy Toxford said on... uh, Radio 4. She said, uh, you may have noticed that Miliband's face is a little bit like his name, a little, bit on the, a little bit on the long side with the eyes too close together. There's the picture. Okay, so enough of this frivolity. What does the Bible say about hope? If that's what the world says about hope, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about where hope really comes from? Listen to this. May the God of hope, the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's digest that. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust him so that you may overflow with hope, more hope than you can contain, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, renaming a church hope, defining us as a people, naming us as hope, is an exciting thing. But it's got to be more than a rebrand. It's got to be something that is written on our hearts. It's got to be something that we wrestle with. Now, some of you I know are involved in business, men and women here, some of you leading businesses, and you probably have already been through rebranding exercises. I'm sure some of you have. And uh, probably experienced some of the, the crisis of identity that can come with that, as people are not quite sure what you are anymore, and the staff have to catch up, and The company is defined in a new way and with a new name. And uh, there have been some great rebrandings, but there have been some disastrous ones as well. And perhaps the most disastrous one of all time was in 2001 when the government uh, decided to rename the post office. Does anyone remember this? They decided to rename the post office or the Royal Mail Consignia. Okay, now... Around that time, this is what somebody wrote in the paper. This somebody had a little bit too much time on their hands, I think. But this is what it was called. Consignia, a recipe for disaster. Take an ancient, well-loved and royal brand, strip it of its value and discard its name. Stuff it with corporate brand speak and a few old chestnuts 
add to the mixture inept management and one finely chopped union. Pour on the scorn of the public and season liberally with financial losses and layoffs. Bring to the boil and simmer gently in intense media glare for 15 months before consigning the entire dish to the scrap heap. An amazing amount of time, money and effort went in to rename something that nobody wanted renaming because the name actually defined what it was. Now, we were Winchester Family Church until last Sunday. And uh, Winchester Family Church is a good name. It's a great name. But family probably is something that everyone has an idea what it means. But hope is a little more intriguing. It invites a question. It invites a conversation. So I want to suggest that it is a good idea to do what we have done. But it has got to mean more than just a sign on the door. Here are two more rebounds that have taken place that were a little more successful. Standard Oil became SO, uh, just a phonetic on the word, literally SO. And Blue Ribbon Sports became Nike. So, if we're to be called Hope, sorry, I'm just fighting back a bit of lurgy at the moment, so I'll just keep drinking water if that's okay. I think to be called Hope does invite people to make a response. You know, I think people want to be invited into a conversation. I think something about the hallmark of our Society today is that people don't just want to be told what is true, they want to be engaged in a process. And some of you will have heard me talking a few weeks ago about Bartimaeus, a blind beggar on the streets of Jericho. And uh, very clear to everybody what the problem was, I would have suggested. But Jesus asked him a question. Jesus said, what would you like me to do for you? And I was talking about how God seems to want engagement. He seems to want conversation. He seems to want us to come to the party as well. And I forget the number now, but I've worked out that Jesus asked something like 147 questions to people who he already knew the answer to the question. You know, it really worries me a great deal that so many people, and I meet lots of people who are not of a Christian persuasion. So many people are still incredibly tuned in to what the church vehemently opposes, you know, whether it's gay marriage or women bishops or a whole load of other issues. If you ask people what the church stands for, a lot of people would say what they know it opposes or what they know it resists. So hope is something that we've got to live out It's not just a doctrine to define. Jesus did an amazing job of mixing together truth and engagement. It's a great job of that. He never expected anybody to believe anything unless they saw something happen first. That's why whenever you see Jesus with crowds or when you see him in the public environment, you will see a miracle happen first. Somebody will disprove me if I say that that is always the case, but on the ma- in the main, you will see that to be worked out. Jesus seemed to be 
doing something that made people go, wow. And they were filled with awe and they said, that's wonderful. That's why they're called signs and wonders. Because they're signs that point to something else. It wasn't just a release of power. It wasn't street magic. It was something that grabbed people's attention. It was something that was impossible that caused people to engage with him. And then he told them of a better way to live. And he said, follow me. And I think a lot of people did because of that. And as you look further into the Acts of the Apostles and the early church, as the mantle now falls on this group of church leaders, early church leaders, and the baton passes from Jesus into the hands of the disciples. I mean, it was a three-year process. But now it's them. And they've been through this event that we now call Pentecost. It was the moment that Jesus spoke about when the power of heaven hit the earth with such power, such force, that the church was born. And these men, men at that time, they were transformed in the blinking of an eye from hopeless wannabes at the end of the Gospels to fearless evangelists by the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles. They carried something in their heart. And it wasn't just the power that they received. It was the hope that resonated in their hearts, that what happened to Jesus would happen to them as well, that they too would be raised as Jesus was raised. And that is what gives us hope, folks. Folks? I didn't want to say folks or friends, so I said folks, not frocks. That is what we need. We need the power from God to change impossible situations. I thought Barry did a splendid job just now. I mean, what an amazing vision that is. I was at the event as well last week. Fantastic. But an organization that is built on justice and being hope bringers, but dependent on the power of God to bring real lasting change in individuals and in a nation. So whatever we do as a church, whatever we engage with as individuals, hope must be the loudest word that people hear in this place. And the loudest word that is coming out from this place. If we are truly to be hope church, we have got to be hope receivers and hope bringers as a result. When I first started working alongside Steve and John here um, two and a half years ago now, seems like yesterday, but it was a long time, and we've been part of the church for a year as a family, just over a year. But when I first started working here and coming in here several days a week, which I still do, I I, I started to walk through this incredible city of Winchester, and I I love this city, and I loved it from the minute I first came here, and we, we used to come here a lot particularly before we had kids. We used to have lunch here and stuff. And I, I've always loved this city, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of these kind of history people. I love connection with old buildings and, and legacy and, and, and um, you know, putting an historical backdrop upon current situations. And, you know, most of you will know that, you know, Winchester, you know, is the ancient capital of England. It is a great city. It has an incredible heritage. And and if you're wide like I am, you'll feel the, the sense of history walking around it, walking through the cathedral grounds and around Winchester College and the old buildings. There is something great about this city. And that's not defined by 
materialism and wealth and success, although there's a good slice of that as well. But ultimately, I believe there is something in the DNA of this city which speaks of greatness. Not elitism, but greatness and justice and hope. You know, even a, even a fleeting glance at the Bible will reveal God's amazing heart for cities. You know, it was his love for Nineveh that caused him to send Jonah. And even though Jonah wrestled with it over and over again, it was God's tenacity to reach the people of Nineveh, to give them one last chance to respond that made such a difference. Just hold these pictures for a sec, Ree, if that's all right. Not quite there yet. As Jesus looked over Jerusalem, there's almost a, a maternal reaction in his heart as he weeps over the city. And he, he, he sort of releases this, what appears to be a deep emotional burden to protect the city and love the city. You can read it in the Gospels. It's quite a contradiction to some of the other images you see of Jesus where he was a fierce defender of the poor, a miracle worker, a hope bringer. But now, in this particular context, Jesus seems almost vulnerable as he expresses the love, the ache in his heart towards the city of Jerusalem. You can read, I think it's in Numbers, of um, when God is actually speaking to the nation of Israel in the build-up to them crossing the River Jordan to inherit the Promised Land. A long story, not for this morning. But they were told to identify cities for a specific purpose. There were six that were identified. And they were to be cities of refuge where people could run to and find safety and amnesty and a second chance. I wonder what Winchester would look like as a city of refuge. I wonder if we have a part to play as a church in making this building a building of refuge, a building where people can run to and find hope and safety and connection and relationship. That's not going to be easy. That'll be messy. It won't look like it looks today. It won't be so easy to define in straight lines and straight rows because if we pray for the broken to come, I feel they probably will come. And so part of being Hope Church, I feel, is us restructuring, as I know we are, in all sorts of ways to be more accessible and more connected, not just to the successful and the well-healed, but the, the mistreated and the hopeless as well. A guy called Malcolm Gladwell, who famously wrote, wrote a book called The Tipping Point that uh, has become a business manual throughout the world. Many of you might have read it. But uh, he did an incredible piece on um, New York City. And he described a 20-year period where New York went from being a, a, a dangerous, volatile, violent place, and certainly in terms of its reputation, to a place of relative safety and a place where people wanted to be. Um, a few years ago, I, I went to visit um, a work that was led by a guy called Bill Wilson, who um, uh, leads what is described as the biggest Sunday school in the world. Um, he has 25,000 children in his Sunday school. 
It's called Metro Ministries. You can look it up on the net. And uh, they own a warehouse in a place called Bushwick, uh, which is tough. <laughs> it's between Brooklyn and Queens, and uh, it, is a, it is a seriously violent area. And, uh, and I, I slept on the floor of the gymnasium where they run some of their meetings. And, and we would just listen to gunfire like all the way through the night. You know, a dangerous place. I felt, you know, how a lot of black people feel in a heavily populated white area. I suddenly experienced that for the first time. Traveling on the tube out to, to, uh, to, to Bushwick through Brooklyn and through Queens and Spanish Harlem. I mean, it's a terrifying place to go if you're of that, if you're a certain disposition. But Bill Wilson is in that place, and uh, he has this huge gymnasium, and they do about five meetings on a Sunday. Then they run this thing called Sidewalk Sunday School, and they've got trucks where the sides flap down. I've got one now. Uh, the, 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 the sides flap down, and they go onto the housing projects, and they and they visit, and they they visit all of these kids throughout the week. But they run the events that reach twenty-five thousand children, and it's still runs today and I went out there for a few weeks and uh, it was uh, New York is an interesting place you know a lot of people go to Manhattan and they sort of enjoy the sights but when you go down into Long Island and you visit some of the other places that are also New York it's a different experience altogether but Gladwell talked about uh, this 20 year period where um, in many ways the foundation and the DNA of New York City was transformed and it transitioned from being a place of threat to a place of hope and what they what he uncovered is that what the decisions that they took were to take very small incremental steps which brought transformation so all the trains all the subway trains were were clean all graffiti was taken off bus shelters and walls and broken panes of glass were systematically replaced and the place started to lift. And in 20 years, it went from being one thing to something else. Very interesting. So let's look at what the Bible says in Isaiah, which maybe speaks into some of these things and maybe defines the role of the church in the days in which we live. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. It's in Isaiah 58, and then jump into Isaiah 61. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. If ever something defined what a people called hope need to be doing, it's these things. To renew a ruined city. To bring hope to the hopeless. I want to show you a, a really stark example of what a devastated city looks like. Um, some years ago, my, my background in World War II history, which goes back from when, up to when I was a small child, and my passion for, for, the, for the church and for people to know God and churches to be relevant and connected, that it, it all seemed to collide. Um, and uh, in some ways, you know, you could look at it and think, well, how do those two things fit together? But it, it, it's really something which has taken me to the, to the beaches of Normandy, to Paris, to the bridges of Arnhem and Nijmegen and the German cities of Hamburg and Berlin. As so I've been to the, some of the places, and most of them, in fact, 
some of the many, many times of towns and cities that were utterly devastated in the latter part of the Second World War. And, and what I've grown to understand is that there is a lasting imprint of, in places where there has been desolation and catastrophic loss of life. And uh, this is a city that I'm going to show you in a moment that I know very well. It's a place called Caen in Normandy. I was there on Friday and Thursday. Um, I work with a network of, of, of leaders there that are planting churches right across that area. And I've been involved with them for about 10 years, just helping them to create the strategies for church planting. And um, this is a few pictures that I want to show you. It's called, uh, it's called Con Then and Now, okay? And there's an image of what happened in the war, and there's an image of the same place now. And I'd just like you to capture uh, what is behind some of these pictures. If we could just drop the lights here, guys, a little bit. That would really help because they're black and white. That would be brilliant. Let me just show you these for a couple of minutes. When a city is devastated, there is a physical impact and there is a spiritual impact as well. And uh, it's very hard sometimes to quantify that and work it out. But when you've been to some of these places as many times as I have and you've worked on the ground and you've worked with churches that are struggling to break through, you suddenly realize that you are are dealing with a legacy that is the past. So, you know, as an example of that... um, Statistics of suicide and the abuse of the young are at epidemic levels, particularly in the city of Caen, disproportionate to most other places. There are other things as well, but when you start to look on the ground, you see, you see spiritual warfare literally being worked out in the lives of families and um, you know, people's lives, and certainly in, in Caen, there is only seven or eight churches in a city that's of about 225,000 people, only six or seven churches, only one over, over 200. And many people have planted churches and put projects in and they've failed and they've come back out again. And next year, uh, we're going to plant a church in the centre of Caen with, um, uh, based around our, our big portable stage that we just brought out from Spain. And, and maybe I'll tell you a bit more about that as we go through the next few months. But um, Lorraine's just going to come up now and just say, um, something for a, mi- a couple of minutes or so which keys into this thank you okay so those statistics are really frightening and and what I really just for two minutes just want to bring is just to maybe just to lift our eyes as we think about this whole thing of hope because when you think of hope it's really easy to think adult to adult it's really easy to think bringing hope to people who are the same age as you Um, as an adult but the thing about hope is it is not age specific it's not age specific at all and therefore the lack of hope has got the potential to devastate a life at any age not just an adult and the 
presence of hope has the ability to revolutionize a life at any age. So I meet people, trying to speak without crying, all the time who are not yet in their teenage years, not yet in their teenage years, and they no longer want to live. And many of them have tried to end their lives. They are not yet teenagers. That is the catastrophic loss of hope that's happening with young people. And therefore, we need to be hope bringers across the generations. As an adult, we are privileged. We have vocabulary. We have a maturity of thinking and all of that to package the hope that we bring for young people and children. They desperately need us as adults to be hope bringers to them so that they will not die, but they will live And they will live to come to know Jesus and be be a legacy of hope to others. And this is not just disadvantaged children. These are children who have had a wonderful upbringing with everything they could ask for, but they are troubled and they're not coping with living in this kind of technological age that we've produced and the pressure it puts on their self-esteem, their growth, their development. It is a pressure cooker being a young person. And so what I'd like to ask us is to be big thinkers and that when we see a person of any age from a child in arms to a um, you know a well hard teenager who is really well soft inside let us be hope bringers let those people those young people those children be better because they bumped into you because they knew you because you smiled at them because you live next door to them because you work with them that our hope would not just be about adults, but would be about the generations that God brings us into contact with. That's good, honey. So I think Steve's done a great job over these last few months talking about what it means to plant the church, replant the church. This is a great church with you know, great history, great tradition. Um, but if we are going to really intentionally reposition the church in the center of a city, then we're going to wrestle with different challenges than what we wrestled with before. And certainly when I think about Caen in Normandy and the place that we're going to plant a church, I just shot a video there on Friday. And I mean, it is the, it's the roughest place in that city. I mean, I was f- literally filming the video and I was looking at my feet and I was surrounded by syringes, condoms, beer cans. You know, I thought, man, this is, this, this is a wasteland. And and I felt as I, as I was talking to the camera, I just felt God say to me, you know, I've called you to the wastelands, to the place is long devastated. And, uh, and then you, look, you lift your eyes from that place and a hundred yards away is the bars and the student accommodation and the business blocks. And it, it just is hilarious, you know. And, you know, we are always, we've always got these things side by side, haven't we? We've got the most vulnerable and the most successful uh, literally cohabiting the same part of turf and the same piece of turf. And, and I remember when I was in Spain a couple of years ago, um, I started to think about how churches were planted in New Testament times. And I think what we've got now, and, and I, I come across this in so many different places with so many different networks, you've got people who plant churches. And what that essentially means is that you identify a new area and the kids move schools and the family moves house and they start a church. And then they bring people like me in to do evangelism to encourage people to come to that new church. 
Whereas when you look at what Paul did in the New Testament, he went into an area and the ground was literally broken with the gospel and with signs and wonders and healings. And leaders were appointed out of that tipping point. We talked about that, didn't we? But the critical mass moment that is created, church is the natural result of the activity of the kingdom. And I think it is so important that we hold on to this, that we can't actually grow a church through a program. We've got to grow a church by the outpouring of hope that is in us and the desire for us to engage with a city. So back home to to Winchester as as I finish, and we're going to pray in a moment. I want us to really try and connect with the rallying cry from heaven, from the heart of a father, for us to be repairers of broken walls and streets with dwellings. Whatever that looks like for you in the world that you inhabit, Monday to Friday. What are the places that are long devastated, physical and metaphysical? What are the structures that you're involved in, whether that's ed- education or health or business, where you're seeing devastation in people's lives and in structures everywhere that you turn? What does it mean to be a hope bringer into those places and into those groups of people, into that demographic?